Welcome back, folks. It's Ivan Zapian and Tim Burgreen and Chess Garrison. We're back this year, ready to go talk all things Washington, D.C., the surroundings, politics, and everything in between. So to tee up our conversation this year, we want to talk about what we think Congress will be doing in the next little bit between now and, say, March, maybe April. Chess, what do you think is on the table? Sure. Well, they, they bought themselves a, a little time, or at least a stay of execution, um, with the CR through early March, um, keeping the laddered CR, although I don't think there's anything preventing them from trying to sort of get some sort of global funding deal that at least gets them through uh, the election. Uh, at some point, the rubber is going to have to hit the road amongst the House Republicans and um, see what they're willing to, what the House Freedom Caucus is willing to agree to. If that's nothing, as sort of appears now, um, going to have to then make some tactical decisions about um, whether to engage with the Senate more robustly and with um, House Democrats to get to get a funding deal over the finish line. Um, as much as it pains me as a Senate Democrat to quote. Mitch McConnell, um, you know, he used to have a saying or still has a saying that if you're going to do something unpleasant, just do it once. Um, and I think um, the House Republicans have not taken that uh, to heart as they've sort of drawn this spending fight out now over, I think, three CRs and, you know, who knows what's coming. Um, but with that sort of moratorium, um, I think I will expect Congress to focus largely on sort of the national security border um, Ukraine-Israel package that has sort of been bandied about and punted into this year. Um, I think that's probably going to dominate um, congressional attention over the next few weeks uh, until we sort of get back into um, the crisis mode of having to fund the government. Tim. So there's that, um, but just to kind of, you know, uh, layer on a little bit of added texture to Chez's, uh fantastic wrap-up. So, you know, part of the looming budget battle is they still don't have the allocations, what, you know, are known colloquially as the 302Bs for all all of the different accounts. And so my understanding is, is that all the subcommittee chairs and their staffs are kind of waiting for the flare to go up um, that indicates that they're ready to go. So that's something that's sort of going to be playing out, um, you know, below the waterline, so to speak, over the next few weeks, but something to keep an eye on as news, you know, inevitably dribbles out. Uh, And just to, you know, note on the national security package, you know, this year, you know, I think, you know, geopolitics, national security are going to be playing in everything that everybody's doing, uh, whether it's here in Washington or elsewhere around the country or around the world. That's one thing that, you know, in sort of the annual surveys of foreign policy experts, um, almost everybody has talked about this being one of the most difficult and consequential years in international affairs in decades. There are dozens of elections around the world, obviously culminating in our own in November. And so it's going to be a dynamic and interesting time. Uh, and not for the faint of heart. So agree 100%. I think 
if, if you look at the big picture, based on everything you both just articulated, and as we think about what's important to our clients and think about, you know, how to navigate these choppy waters, um, it's not for the vein at heart, as Tim says. It's not going to be an easy, um, you know, uh, first tranche of this very contentious Congress, um, very challenging, giving the House majority of you know, 218, 219, frankly, not a functioning 217 majority because, you know, Tim, you've got much, a lot of experience in the House of Representatives. There's always somebody that's got a wedding, two people that get sick. You know, it's just, it, it, it's, it, it's going to be very hard sort of to navigate politically, um, even on a good day. So we've got a lot in front of us. Um, you know, by my count, you know, right in front of us right now, we have border security. That's probably, you know, one of the most contentious issues out there. We have taxes, right, which nobody saw coming, you know, and all of a sudden it's front and center for us. Um, you know, you have Ukraine, which we knew was coming. We have Israel, you know, and we have to fund the government, right? And there's a, there's some pieces all there underneath that. And I think we can spend a lot of time, you know, talking about how difficult this is, you know, but what 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 has what what has caught my attention is that we always underestimate Joe Biden in the White House, right? Joe Biden, you guys can push back on this, but let me just throw this theory out here, out there. Like Joe Biden has really got the Republicans in a corner, right? Because on all these issues, whether it's border security, whether it's taxes, you know whether it's Israel and every single one of these issues, the Republicans are now coming clean that they don't see that it actually, any of these issues get better for them, even if they take over total control of Congress. Right. So on the border security issue, it's amazing to me to see Lindsey Graham, right. And some of the conservatives in the Senate say like, Hey folks, this is like, we've never had a border security deal without a pathway to citizenship. This is as good as it gets on taxes. Like, okay, you might wait until you have reconciliation or some other, you know, sort of fancy vehicle, you know, if assuming your Republicans take over, but this may be as good as it gets, right? So the Republicans are really left with a, it was a, a weird choice, you know, um, now that the White House has signaled that they're open to all of these deals, you know, the, it really is like, what's their move? No, and one, one other data point to throw in here. So we're recording this on the 19th of January. I know it's going to drop in a few days, but the latest consumer sentiment number has just been released, and that is finally starting to tick up a little bit. And so you're going to find that one of the issues that the Republicans have been, you know, sort of campaigning on writ large, which is that the economy is terrible and Americans are extremely unhappy about their economic situation is starting to turn around. And that is a lagging indicator generally. But, you know, as the economy hopefully continues to pick up uh, momentum in the first quarter and first half of this year, that number is going to continue to rise as well. And that's going to box in uh, Trump, who has already, I believe, expressed his desire for the economy to do poorly this year, um, you know, box him into, you know, other issues, so to speak. Jess, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's fair. I will note that you named, I think, two Senate Republicans and the House is just such a different animal right now that um, I, I would agree in a conventional Congress that um, 
there are deals to be made. I think, you know, politics is the art of the possible, and this is what's possible right now. Um, <clears throat> that being said, you know, conventional wisdom and conventional thinking has not been a hallmark of this Congress. So, um, you know, I, I think while these all have momentum and have a, a path to enactment, or at least, you know, sort of more robust consideration, um, I don't think we should be naive that there are, um, aren't big hurdles that, that will sort of have to be cleared sort of at a macro level this Congress before, um, or as, you know, sort of these, these micro issues um, sort of come to the forefront. But I, I agree. I think, surprisingly, there is a fair amount that, that can get done, um, even though you talk to anybody in town and all they say is, you know, how dysfunctional this place is and now nothing, nobody ever wants to work together. I, I think you just named, you know, four pretty big ticket areas where folks are interested in working together and, and, and trying to get something done, um, in part because, you know, this Congress has been sort of been so marked by chaos that um, everyone's, you know, at least in the House, everyone's going to have to go home and face their electorate and, you know, point to some reason to justify their continued existence in Congress. So. So that's a great point, Jess. Um, you know, I, I think that, and you guys feel free to push back on me on this, but I think that, you know, one point that people forget, you know, um, is that, and people think I'm wrong on this, and, and I may be wrong, but, you know, I do have a theory, you know, and I, and I have some data points to put, back this up, that the more dysfunctional, right, and the more inept Congress appears to be a governing, the more productive it becomes, right? So if you go back to when Donald Trump was elected, right, and start, you know, whether you start at the beginning of the Trump administration or you start at COVID, you know, the, the time, those six years have been remarkably productive. You may not like what got done. You know, but like, you know, tax reform, you know, you know, finally, you finally got an infrastructure bill, you know, all the stimulus bills. Like there, there was a lot of legislative activity that got done, very, very functional. And I, I, you know, I tend to think that the next little bit may not be an exception and that we may see a situation where the legislative, you know, the legislative session between now and say April, it's like when a boa constrictor, you know, eats a rabbit that's been eating too much, right? Like they're just going to go for it, you know, and that you may see a tax deal, you may see a border security, you may say Ukraine, you may, you may see, because there's going to be enough folks that say, hey, people, this may be as good as it gets, between now and the next little bit, right? And when you have enough people on both sides that come to that conclusion, you know, and, you know, following Mitch McConnell's lead, like, let's do this unpleasant thing once and go back to blaming each other for everything. I know that sounds like pie in the sky, but I think that's possible. So it is possible. And there's an interesting sort of dimension to this, right? Which is that it's going to require some sort of accommodation between Johnson and the Democrats. No, no, for sure. For sure. And, and, and Tim, you know, I, I think under my scenario, just like every other scenario, right? It requires, it requires heavy hitters, heavy hitters on both sides, sort of hitting hard. Right. And, you know, you can't do that 10 times in a legislative session. But as we've seen, you know, as we've seen in the last six years, you can do it once or twice per legislative, you know, per legislative session a year. Right. Where people come in and just sort of say, we're doing this, you know, um, and as dysfunctional and, and as crazy as things may be, particularly in the House, I do think 
Tim, I do think that um, there's a window for this to happen. I'm inclined to agree with you. I know that I believe it was Pete Aguilar, um, who's a member of the Democratic leadership in the House, uh, said the other day that, you know, they were open to some kind of a deal that would help preserve Johnson's speakership, you know, in exchange for moving forward on some items, I think, of sort of mutual priority for both parties. And if there is a way to do that and to tactically cut out the crazies um, and get things done, you know, that that would be great. It would be great for the country and good for the Congress. Um, I think that is, that's an awful, you know, that's going to be an awful big lift within sort of just the interpersonal dynamics of this Republican conference in the House. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And I know I'm starting to sound loony, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, something like this comes together quickly and without people realizing how bad of a deal it is for both sides. And it goes through quickly. And three months from now, people are going to be like, I can't believe that went through. And that's been the case for every major piece of legislation. Never mind the fact that, you know, Congress has to tell, you know, the country, you know, and the economy, right, and the business sector that it, that it can actually work and do things, right? And that's, a, that's a very important. And I think our clients are looking for, you know, for some, you know, for some functioning elements within this chaos. And I, I'm optimistic. Chess, what do you think? Yeah, I can see that. I think another factor that would lean in favor of potentially, you know, deals getting cut is that there are going to be, and there already are a, a ton of members that are retiring. Um, I would expect more announcements in the coming weeks and months, especially if, um, you know, things continue to drag, you know, in, in the similar dysfunction and sort of um, malaise around Capitol Hill. Um, and, you know, sometimes when members announce they're retiring, they're sort of free to vote their um, conscious rather than, you know, toe the party line and worry about, um, you know, the next campaign, the next primary, um, making sure that your, you know, leadership funds are going to continue to go to your campaign. So um, that would also cut in favor of, um, you know, some deals getting getting cut. And Ivan, to your point, I, I totally agree that a lot of times there's sort of, as you get closer, there's momentum that, you know, to carry something over the finish line that, you know, you look back on and, you know, even two or three months and they're sort of like, well, Jesus, why did we decide to, you know, agree to that? But um, these things kind of can take on a life of their own and a momentum of their own. And um, the desire to get something done um, when you've been sitting in a, you know, conference room across from, you know, the same group of five people for two and a half months sometimes overtakes um, sort of what, what's actually in the deal. And I think, for example, if you look at border security, you know, which, you know, I've, you know, I've, I've worked on and followed for a long time on the board of security. Like the, the one thing that, you know, the one thing that calls uh, attention in my mind to the way the board of security bill is being put together is that it doesn't include any of the usuals, right? So it excludes big components of the stakeholders that are required for this to be sort of a deal that is signed off by some of the major stakeholders, right, in the immigration debate for the last 30 years, right? So, you know, that's been problematic. That's been sort of, you know, hashed out, particularly on the Democratic side, right, um, because of the lack of having the CHC involved, right? But, it, you know, weirdly enough, it hasn't stopped its momentum, 
Right. It, it, weirdly enough, both the, the Senate and, and, and the White House has not signaled that this is dead in the water. Right. So I, I, I just I think there's a lot I, I think there's a lot going on. And I think that, um, you know, this may be the, you know, 1996 Arizona Wildcats that win the national championship with an all freshman team. And nobody saw that coming except for Ivan Zapian. Who's Mike Bibby in this situation? That's right. That's right. Tim, so where do you think this goes after the big, the first big tranche? Look, it's an election year. It's a general election year. And so there is a certain drift of the way things go. I think what will happen is that the once the 2024 appropriations process is completed, hopefully, you know, in the next six to eight weeks, um, the appropriations committees on both sides will turn in earnest to the 2025 appropriations process. They will go through a lot of the internal work in both the House and the Senate. There will be subcommittee markups. There will be some committee markups. There may even be floor consideration in one or both chambers of some of them. But then everything is going to come to a stop um, you know, in or before July. And then, you know, it'll turn to election season. And what that means for clients who have interest in the appropriations bills is that actually, in a lot of ways, everything is stacked early this year. And so it means that people need to be thinking about, you know, what it is that they're concerned about, what it is they're interested in, and what provisions they may want to try to secure. And they should be doing that now in January and not waiting until February, until after the 24 process is done. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, I, I think that that sounds, that sounds like the, the likely path. You know, I think um, as, as, I've, as we talk to clients and we, you know, try to help clients figure out how to, you know, deal with their challenges and opportunities in Congress, you know, what, one of the things that, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about and talking to people about is, you know, this whole thing is turned on its head, right? Because, um, you know, it seems like the more productive, you know, but the more productive place in Congress is now the U.S. Senate and the House is where things go to cool off, which is, I think, you know, uh, you know, I wasn't the greatest student you know, back in high school and junior high, but I think the founders saw it re in the reverse, right? So um, that's um, that's complete, um, you know, on its head, number one. Number two, you know, number two, which I, I think is still consistent, Chess, and get, curious to get your thoughts since you're, you're a Senate guy as well. Um, you know, in the United States Senate, as I've always, as, as I've always noted, and we'll write in my book one day, every single one of the 100 senators thinks they're more important than the president of the United States. All 100 of them, right? All 100 of them, right? They think they can be president and they think they're more important than the president of the United States. So they've been able to sort of rebuff, you know, pressures from the president from their party or from another party, frankly, right? Um, you know, uh, but the House of Representatives and this, the House of Representatives is really, really influenced by what the presumptive nominee of the Republicans, which throws a weird wrench into the legislative process. I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of when Ted Cruz used to go across from the Senate to the House 
to sort of talk to the conservatives and get them riled up. Now I think it's actually their presidential candidate, right, who's getting them all riled up. So that's a new dynamic for, for us to deal with. But, you know, just curious to get your thoughts on how that creates opportunities or challenges for clients. Yeah, I'd agree. And just to add on to your point about every senator thinking that, you know, <laughs> they know better than the private, I guess I would add on that I think every senator thinks they know better and would do a better job than the president's currently doing or has a, a, a laundry list in their back pocket of grievances with the way that the president in either party is um, carrying out their role. So um, just sort of a little bit of uh, center humor there. But no, I, I agree. I, th- I think that, you know, we're going to hear if any of these deals ever get enacted, there's going to be a big announcement that there's a deal, you know, a handshake deal. We saw it with the tax deal last week. And then there's going to be sort of trepidation as they try to pitch it to their um, various um, constituencies and caucuses and, and conferences. Um, and then there's usually like a day or two later, you know, President Trump via a truth social can throw cold water on it. And then there's, you wait another couple of days and you sort of see how much, you know, that cold water killed whatever was announced. So I, th- I think that there are serious hurdles from, you know, the groups of members that want to reach bipartisan deals to then getting something considered. But I, I don't think that they are all, impossible. And I would just, you know, caution folks and have caution clients to, yeah, I think you read sort of the daily headlines and sort of you can judge if things are going trending in a positive direction or negative direction, but things are rarely dead in Washington. Um, So even if it looks like, you know, there's just no way this bill has any traction, any constituency, not enough votes, um, you know, wait another 24 hours and, and see where we are. I was just going to say, and never, ever underestimate the power of self-interest. 100%. 100%. So that's a, so, so, so we're, we think border security, taxes, Ukraine, Israel, funding the government, you know, all part of what seems to be like a incredibly difficult, almost impossible, practically, you know, a pipe dream thing to happen between now and March. But, um, you know, you know, put me in the category of, you know, it could happen, you know, it it, it could happen. And and I think people may have more game than we give them credit for these days. Um, You know, and then you've got the laundry list of other things, you know, whether it's FAA reauthorization, the ag bill, AI, you know, the antitrust bills, you've got a whole nother crew of issues that I think, you know, have a lot of attention around Washington, DC, a lot of focus, You've got China, obviously, you know, you got the recommendations that came out of the China committee. China's like, you know, probably the first time in our lifetimes, right, that foreign policy is actually on the radar screen of politics going into an election year in a significant way. So China's going to be, you know, as, you know, China's out there and there's always a possibility that China something happens. No, absolutely. There's, you know, China, um, you know, and there's there's two possible flashpoints there, sort of there's Taiwan, obviously, which had an election recently, uh, and the party that Beijing does not like uh, is holding on to the presidency. And then there's also the South China Sea, where the Chinese Coast Guard uh, and its maritime militia have been harassing uh, Filipino boats trying to resupply garrisons on these small little islets. And it's, you know, one of these obscure things that could touch off sort of a global conflagration. 
you know, and at the same time, you have numerous other crises exploding around the world now. Um, you know, the Israel-Gaza war is continuing. Ukraine is, you know, we, we'll be talking in another year about the Ukraine-Russia war still going on. And now the Middle Eastern situation has spread to the Red Sea and possibly to the northern border of Israel. So it's going to be a very, very interesting few months, as I said earlier, not for the faint of heart. Not for the faint of heart. And, and you know, and, and if, if listeners, you know, are not subscribed or don't get, you know, uh, Tim and Shelly Castle's, you know, China executive report, you should. Uh, it's a quick, easy read. And uh, to know, you know, everything you need to know that's occurred that week uh, in the U.S.-China relations. So, Tim, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about your newsletter. Every week, uh, a colleague and I put together a newsletter that combines a digest of information about, you know, things going on here in Washington, things going on in Beijing, and things going on in Europe and elsewhere related to China, as well as sort of a sort of editorial think piece up at the top. And it's a good, a good sort of one-stop shop to get a general overview of what's going on vis-a-vis uh, -vis China and the United States. Well, thank you. So just to, just to wrap things up. So, it's you know, by my count, we've got border security, a tax bill, Ukraine funding, Israel funding, you know, government funding, the FAA bill, the ag bill, AI, antitrust legislation. We forgot that they're going to impeach President Biden. They're going to impeach, um, you know, Mallorca's. Um, we've got, you know, war in Ukraine that could draw us all into it. We've got, uh, you know, a war in the Middle East that is, you know, still very hot that where the U.S., you know, has a lot of interest. We have elections here in, in 96 different countries around the world. But other than that, this should be a pretty quiet, easy year to deal with. So a lot ahead. And in closing, maybe we should just spend a little time talking about the politics of the year. Um, and just to kick it off on my end, you know, I, I will say that a lot of attention is being put on Joe Biden's numbers. A lot of attention is being put on the lack of enthusiasm, right? Um, and I think it's entirely, entirely explicable, right? Like, look at what we just described. Like the world is a tough place, right? Like nobody's waking up in the, mor in the morning, regardless of your outlook, whether you're a Democrat, Republican saying things are, they, uh, things are, you know, hunky dory, right? So this is a very challenging political environment for Joe Biden. I think it'll get better for Joe Biden, you know, but, you know, my plug for Joe Biden, and this doesn't work to, in, in, to make anybody, you know, uh, inspired by him, but like Joe Biden and Democrats are actually governing in a way that is good for the country that isn't necessarily and probably not good for them politically, right? Every deal that we just talked about that they may cut, whether it's taxes, whether it's border security, probably Ukraine, probably Israel, none of it's going to work out politically well for them, right? There's constituencies that are not going to be happy with it, but you know, that's what you do when you're a leader, right? You make tough decisions on behalf of the country. And I hope and I pray that that's, 
going to pay off for the president, but it's going to be a tough year politically for Democrats as a result of everything that we're talking about and the fact that they're good, that Democrats are governing, you know, in a serious, methodical way. Tim? So a couple things. One, I think that we're still going to uh, see another election in which abortion uh, is a big tailwind for Democrats uh, that, that may go uh, to blunt some of the headwinds that you just, I think, you know, cataloged extremely well. Um, and I agree with you. Look, you know, you and I at least are old enough to remember when, you know, this was sort of the norm that, you know, when the going got tough, you took tough votes. And if you ended up losing your seat, you know, that was part of the arrangement. And, you know, we are going to see over the next few months, you know, which members, which senators, which party or parties are going to sort of meet the moment because we run out of runway in a lot of ways as far as kicking a lot of this stuff down the road. And I'm going to say it a third time, not for the faint of heart. Jess, your views? Yeah, sort of in terms of the presidential, you know, I agree. I think the numbers will come close together. I think Biden right now is struggling with sort of the progressives and young voters. And, um, you know, there is thinking that as, you know, it becomes what everybody thinks, and I sort of agree with, will be a Trump-Biden rematch, that the juxtaposition of those two and the sort of the consequences of a second Trump Trump presidency will, um, you know, drive voters, even if begrudgingly, back to Biden. Um, he obviously can't do anything about his age at the moment um, or, you know, in the next six months. Um, so that that issue is out there. And all he can do to you know rebut that is to get out on the trail and be active and um, try to navigate Congress at the same time. Um, the other, you know, elephant in the room is, you know, the impending potential impending trials of President Trump. And, um, you know, this is obviously unprecedented, but um, could very much shape the discourse, frankly, one way or the other, because, um, his base seems to support him more, um, the more legal peril he gets in. So, um, you know, and I'll, I'll just also caution that at this point in the 2020 election, um, you know, I think I think we were aware of COVID, but it had not um, forced the shutdowns. We were still about two months away from that. So, um, you know, who knows between now and November what, you know, in addition to the uh, laundry list of global crises that we're facing at the moment, what else can get added onto that and how that can shape the election. Um, just all the more reason for folks to continue to pay attention and um, continue to rely on wise Washington Council. Chess, ever the optimist. We just outlined a very challenge, a very challenging year ahead for us and our clients. And Chess is here to remind us that the day ain't over yet, and it could actually be worse <laughs> in a couple hours. So, on that note, uh, really enjoy the conversation, guys, and um, look forward to doing this again sometime soon. That's all. That's it. That's the life we've chosen for ourselves. It's Washington, D.C. 